There's a concept in Eastern thought called interpenetration or interdependent co-origination, that all things are interwoven and that they originated out of that interweaving so that our obligation toward reality is to realize that principle of that which is interwoven and unknotted and real. In tribal peoples of Northern America, there's a similar concept of Matakuyasin among the Central Plains tribes of the varied Sioux clans and up into the Shoshone and Wind River groups and the Cree and Blackfoot. So through the Central and Western Plains of the Americas, we are all related, all my relations. And when someone would ask a question, what does this mean to a Buddhist or to a Northern tribal man or woman or child or elder? The puzzlement is really, how do you not understand that we are family? We are progeny of that which is holy. You know the mountains and the waterfall and the wind, and the sea, and the spruce needles, and the beaver, and the otter, and the hawk, and the magpie, and the raven, and the cardinal, and the robin, and the nuthatch, and on and on, until we realize, what is this person talking about? And they're trying to point us in the direction of realizing how they and we are related so that we could understand the love causing us to meet breath to breath in this moment, everywhere and always. And that would be the understanding of many traditional tribal peoples from all throughout our world. And I feel that the great affliction facing us right now is our own ignorance of the feminine, our own unawareness, what I have come to call our immature feminism. I've joked that a book could be written about it. The constructs that are keeping us caught, mean girl, righteously independent as a weapon rather than a realization. Time for myself rather than for everyone else. And I spoke last month about my father's mother and what it was like to be at her side when she was dying. My beloved grandmother, Anna, my other beloved grandmother's name was Cora, my mother's mother. But my father's mother bore one child, my dad. And so Anna always taught me to be the young matriarch beside my father. She revered my mother, spoke to her, saying if she had her own daughter, she couldn't have loved her more. They loved another one another immensely. And yet she trained me to take over when my mother was no longer young and able. So from when I was two years old and just learning to talk and walk, she would just teach me. The feminine womb and heart and soul of her 
was interpenetrated with the same living prayer and aspiration that conceived and bore my dad into me, into this conversation we're having today. I was unafraid of the feminine parts of my grandmother, Anna. I understood that she was living the lamp of herself in the great mystery of eternity. And she was passing on to me the fidelity of that torch, the loyalty of that flame, the expectation that no matter what I faced in my tiny to this now somewhat elderly life, every breath, every moment, every footprint of space I would occupy on this earth would be embodied as her Betsy, Elizabeth Ann. I'm absolutely unafraid of that signature of her living mature humanism, her feminism become interpenetrated into all women, all men. For me, I've used the symbol many times for a number of years of the ruby, not as a stone of financial dearness or cost. The little ring she gave to me when I was a very young girl was not terribly expensive, but it was very lovely. So if people in different parts of the world would think, well, Beth had a ruby ring as a little girl, I'm, I'm aware it wasn't an extravagant ring. It would have been a ring that a school teacher could afford in my culture or a janitor, a person working in a little cafe could have obtained that ring. And my grandmother's love for her own parents and siblings and son, husband, daughter-in-law, and four grandchildren was an embodiment of the principle that forged that ruby in this earth. Okay, so your cells physically are made of stardust and so are mine. They are of a fission, a unified transformative creation, which includes our understanding and yet is beyond it. But we are of that mystery, of that understanding, and that is interpenetrated. So when you go through something, I experience it. When I go through something, you experience it. Do we know this? There are some people in the world who can feel the mood of the world, the earth, humankind. And I want to speak to this because I've had people ask me historically, what's it like for you? And I will note to people, all of us are mystics. Mystic really just means the way in which you are one with God or God is one with you. Yet you're not the whole ocean, but you are of the substance of the whole ocean of creation. You're like a dewdrop of it. And your sensate self, the part that is conceived and born and will mortally die as a human being, it has particular senses which have a temporal ability. They take a breath, certain cells are shaped and formed, 
others are shed so that your entire body is replicated, repeated in, in sort of transformative nuances that are the same and yet transformed and different. About every seven years, the entire body would be anew. You're sort of anew, renewed. And so those cells of your body that constitute what your soul lives in physically and expresses as the living being you are, are interpenetrated with all of creation through the entire cosmos. And parts of you temporally can feel that stardust. And so with your senses of sight and sound and taste and smell and touch, you have experiences that are physical and then ones that are like the tree bark, the etheric mood of creation, and then emotion, and then the the psyche, the aura and chakras, the metaphysical or personality or character part of yourself. And when one is clear, it's, it's like a transparent stained glass window. Hi, it's you. What a beautiful identity manifesting to express some part of your soul through light and sound and creation. And me, meeting you, how wonderful. And then we are interpenetrated with one another and all other beings. And then we feel the mental sense where we observe and witness when we are awakening. When we're not awakening, we go, oh, it's you in that ridiculous outfit or that dress or that name or this culture. How dare you? I'm so opaque. I, I don't think I can accept the way you look or what you think or how you feel. And then we lose the nuance of the interpenetration. And we start trying to cause a fight with the creator, the entire universe, how you identify, how I identify. And then we have karma. We have enacted the idea that there's something separate between us and we're going to have a boxing match till we decide to work it out. And most of us never do. We just push and pull against one person or one aspect of ourselves, a family member, a neighbor, being at work, until our whole life becomes an argument about what is not real and a projection of trying to please the desires of grasping at what is not real. And so the Buddha called this famously the nightmare of the day. Among the native peoples of the world, they historically have felt that prophetically they were to help this massive number of souls when it became apparent that there would be so many people coming into their remote areas of tribal culturalism that they were to hold ceremony and patterns of virtuous traditional practice until we understood interpenetration. It is basically as simple as that. So why don't we do this? Well, because we're afraid that if we do, we'll die will just disappear like a, like a bubble, like flower petals scattered to the wind. And then who will I be? Someone else will pray on me. And my answer as a mystic is not really. Always begin, always commence with your attention, asking for protection. May I be protected in all ways, everywhere and always. May the great paths of all beings be protected 
and guided everywhere and always. And then we commence engaging the next moment in the karmas of God, the acts of God, the actions that are the ocean. And we, the dewdrop, enter the ocean and realize, I never left the ocean, I just thought I did. So I'm going to begin this with something that's been very painful for the human race in recent days. Uh, There's been a terrible tragedy caused by aspects of the natural world on one of the Hawaiian islands called Maui. Famously in tourism and based on parts of the modern history, there's an old phrase, Maui is the best. And it's not really a competitive phrase, but it's been used to advertise and to try to express this sweet mood that is present in that place. I've known people who've lived on Maui and worked on Maui. I have had the approach of visiting that area. I underwent a particularly profound Kriya initiation with Swami Hari Haranandagiri Baba, um, a man from South Asia, from northern India, who is one of the finest human beings I've ever known, who took me through the traditional initiation from the lineage of uh, Babaji, Krishna, Jesus, Lahiri Mahasya, uh, Sri Yukteswar, Paramahansa Yogananda, and himself, and then the progeny to whom he's passed that on. So it was a remarkable experience. It occurred on Maui. I have visited there. One of my mentors, W.S. Merwin, William Merwin, and his wife Paula, they're no longer alive, lived there for many years, and he formed a gorgeous plantation, really, of palms from all over the world, which he gathered and planted. He and Paula are buried there. They lived into their latter years and um, died not so far apart in time. We're extraordinary caretakers of one another. He's been one of our most renowned poets and was very tender in mentoring me as a girl becoming a woman, as a human being becoming a very private person, expressing myself poetically in writing, in life. There was always interpenetrated safety between us. He was a great womanizer when he was younger. And when I was asked about this by John, I said, he was fatherly toward me. I was always very safe with him. His care of me was extremely deep and filled with great faith and encouragement. Humanly, through all of my senses, writing, living, observing, listening, looking, sensing, perfume with scent, flowers, garbage heaps, decaying body of a roadkill animal, the smell of the sea, the taste of wine or fresh juice or pure water, which I might take to him and place on the stage when he came to do a reading at my college. Merwin, would you like something else to drink? No, this is good. Thank you. Right into the very cells of my hands, I could be beside him safely in a very similar way to how I experienced being beside my grandmother. 
So my perception of what this state is, that safety, is a spiritual quality we might be privileged to learn at the knee of a grandparent or an elder, or we might suffer if we don't learn it. And so why not learn it now? Interpenetration is the place where my grandmother, when she lit a candle in prayer, the stardust of her cells of her body was really atomically interwoven with mine. She was unafraid of that. There was no warfare between the atoms of her incarnation and the atoms of mine. So my relationship with Merwin had a similar nuance to it because he would sit at the feet of his father. His father was a Presbyterian minister and his father would sit in his study working, writing his sermon for Sunday and deciding what readings and prayers he was going to say. And Merwin's mother would tell him, if you, don't, if you won't bother him, Bill, you can go in there and you sit, but you need to not bother your father. He's working. So Merwin would think, I'm going to write a hymn too. I want, to, I want to write a sermon too. And so as a very little boy, between ages like three and seven, he would sit in the atoms of his father's body and the atoms of his, which were actually made of one another physically through conception and birth, but they were in relationship. Not just love, heart to heart, but love, the embodiment from before either of them were conceived. Through every breath, every, every aspect, the tiniest aspect we do and don't understand scientifically of all the parts of the cells of their two bodies and my grandmother's Anna's and mine. And I am etched into eternity as a poem of God through Merwin and Anna and his father, the minister, and Anna's father, and my father, her only child. And in God, that place is always home, always safe. And when we live from that place of interdependent co-origination, oh, somehow you and I as human beings began from that place in the mystery of eternity, present that eternity in this moment, in you and in me. And then the cells of our bodies open up. And beyond all argument, we are with the creation of life, your body, in whatever stage of health or infirmity or youth or aging you exist and me and mine. And as long as there's the earth and the sun and the moon, we are then in a home that is sacred and real. And we are to learn how to be in that home, interpenetrated, practicing the breath, just as the Buddha did in his last years. He was studying his breathing becoming enlightened. I was looking at something, one of my old teachers, Robert Thurman, he's a renowned Buddhist scholar, he's many other things also, but he's best known in the world for being a renowned Buddhist scholar. He just turned, I believe, 82 just the other day. 
And I was looking up something he'd done in his, his scholarly work and just noting my intimacy with him, mystical yet real, and my prayers for his future, for his family, for where he will go when he leaves this body, for my mothering of that. I'm not just a daughter to him. Where he goes after he leaves this body is interpenetrated with me and the Buddha, whom he has studied dearly for decades. And so the quality of some of his deep work was on the same sutras, the Satipatthana and the Mahasatipatthana sutras, which were what the Buddha was working on in his last years. So very late in the night, five in the morning the other night, I was, oh, well, hmm, I didn't know that about Thurman. Well, no wonder, of course. Why wouldn't he be known for that? And Thich Nhat Hanh, with whom I studied the same sutras, the same, there's called suttas in Pali, sutras in Sanskrit. The same, we were, we were practicing the same awakening into greater interpenetration of our love of our relationships, all my relations. So as I turn to a Native American concept, if we have a mature feminism, as in my grandmother, Anna, she held a place of life being sacred, no weapons. This is not necessarily naive. When a baby is being born, the older matriarch will generally call for quiet and serenity in the birthing chamber. The older matriarch will call forward from her own soul and heart and cells a mood of stardust in which the birthing mother feels safe as she goes through the primordial movement of her baby becoming an individual born of her, the little one who has been one within her, the two yet one, is now leaving the internal safety of her womb, her circulatory system, her nourishment, her breathing, and a new breath is going to take, to take place. At what moment? It's mysterious. It's of the intimacy in the mystery that is your home and mine. And my grandmother, Anna, always made that safe for me. What an extraordinary love. And then the next moment becomes one where God does not leave me or Anna. God does not leave the elder matriarch safely delivering the young mother of her baby. The women don't have to be of the same tribe. What language do you speak? What color eyes do you have? Where do you live? How much money do you make? The mean girl idea of your separate selves is so immature. If a baby were being born, would you take your cashmere sweater or your rag of a jacket to wrap the child 
or the mother who is so vulnerable? There is nothing more vulnerable than the woman giving birth. There is nothing wiser than the woman or man attending that mother and that first breath of that child. Okay, so in the states I live in, humanly, that are very humble and ordinary, I am always in that delivery room. God never leaves me. Every breath, he is delivering me. I experience this all the time. I'm always amazed that everyone around me doesn't experience it too. It's actually not difficult. It's just that one is usually not allowed to be fully interpenetrated. Why? Because we're terrified of that divine love. Why? Because we think, they'll be Auschwitz. I go, I'm sorry, are you going to be a victim? Or are you going to be one of the guards killing everybody? Who are, who are you? And we think, I don't know, but I don't want to be either. I go, well, then you need to show up and allow the feminine parts of yourself, no matter what your orientation is of how you were born, a girl, a boy, a hermaphrodite, we all come forward with a receptive X chromosome. And then we have another chromosome that enacts the action of the interpenetration embodies this. It is our obligation to lovingly embody this beyond all violence toward God or the universe or oneself or any other living being. In Hinduism, that is called the Divine Mother or Daughter or Sister or Beloved or Wife. And you are responsible for this within yourself. And it's time that the feminine part of us realizes that feminism needs to birth this fully. That we become humanists and offer this greatest gift that the feminine has or is. And then we know what to do. So According to our different perceptions and our abilities, Thurman learned fluent Tibetan in six months, which is like historically a remarkable story. People go, did you know that Thurman learned Tibetan in six months? People are just astonished. I don't think I could learn fluent Tibetan in 20 years. I don't have that facility. But I have a different way that I can be with the nature of that which pours through the Himalayan mountains and the peoples of China, Bhutan, Mongolia, Tibet, Kashmir, Northern India, Pakistan, the world. And in that, Thurman and I are family, holy family. I'll never forget the first moment I met him. What he said in class, I was 19 years old. Just etched in my soul. Oh, here we are. And here we are 50 years later. Ah, oh, here we are, Thurman. Here we are, humanity. 
intimate, creatures of such love that's really beyond our understanding. And yet we are the fruit of that love and the seed of that love. Merwin, the conversations with his wife in his last years as Paula tended William's failing body and with her own extraordinary courage and devotion and as he tended hers. They were unafraid of that mystery of love between them. It was a great love. It is a great love. And so this quality of interpenetration, it's beyond our ability to intellectually study and stay separate. We have to be willing to become it. And then we are so often unwilling or afraid because as soon as we entrust it to someone where they have been taught it's not safe yet, or it's not safe here, or it's not safe here yet, or it's not safe yet here, they do something to hurt us. At whatever level we're most vulnerable, mentally, egoically, emotionally, physically. So we learn to create constructs of life that are not real, that are not mature. We need the matriarchal part of ourselves to say, children, get up, stop treating each other this way, share, behave virtuously. As my younger brother said when I was lovingly with him several weeks ago, our mother taught us if we didn't have something nice to say about someone, we simply shouldn't say it. We were with a small group of people and it was so precious hearing my beloved brother simply state that the mood of him the tone of his voice was filled with the understanding of the virtuous nature of our mother who had shaped all four of her children each of us with a very different personality and yet expecting us to come from this state of safe interpenetration with one another and with her. That receptive feminine energy is as real as all the stars of the universe. And we must, at this time of such transition in our Earth's temperament, climate, responses to the human race, we are kind of at a stage of going, whoops, what do we do now? Well, the earth is showing us. We are responsible. As she acts, we have to act in an interpenetrated manner. Not a grasping as if we don't have this feminine open aura. Not in a manner of, oh, well, I do what I want. and you do, What difference does it make? Or let's just go down with the earth. What the heck? It's not an adequate answer. You just have to take it up in another time and place. You know, failure is not part of who you really are. It's also excessively violent to everyone else. And some people like me are very sick of that. Immature feminism. We could talk about the mask in, in another point, but right now it's time to go, oh, I wasn't thinking of it that way. I go, most people are not, but the earth is. 
So in this quality of the mature feminism into humanism, in the native tribes, there's the concept, and I've spoken often of Twyla Nitsch from the Seneca and Oneida Iroquois, and also she also was of Scottish descent as well. She would famously say, the women are to sit in a circle where they include one another. They don't let the circle break. They allow that quality among them to be responsibly unified and respectful. And she told me very deeply that I was to insist upon this when I was with people, that, that mankind needed to learn this from the native tribes. And then what happens when a group of women can embody this and include men in this, they start delivering what the Hopi call the great peace. They start delivering a virtuous capacity for what we are to be and do. And then when the mystery of the next moment comes, there is a beautiful, graceful way through it even if it is a tragic experience. And I want to go to this because I watch people go through experiences in their lives and then think it's easy when there's something lovely, like a gift, a party, a beautiful dress, a fine jacket, enough prosperity or health. But what do I do when that's not what's meeting me and I want to go another direction? You still go right into the middle of this. Lovingly, virtuously, interpenetrated with God in everyone and in everything, everywhere. Where else would you go? That's your home. The only reason you have not always known this is because most of our mothers were not completely enlightened or realized, or our grandmothers or great-grandmothers. So we, we head off in all these different directions protect yourself this way until it's safe. Then go over here until it's really safe. Then go do this to that other person until it's safe. Then do this to the women because they're not safe. Then do this to the men because you know the men. I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not the way. The way is to allow ourselves to awaken and with discernment practice virtue. Next breath, practice virtue. Next breath, in the interpenetration that is the divine through everyone and everything, including oneself, embody this. Beyond all violence toward anyone, anywhere, always, everywhere. Oh. So there was a terrible fire which occurred on the island of Maui this past month. There was a terrible earthquake which occurred in Turkey earlier this year. There was a terrible flood which occurred in New England, in Vermont, where I've taught for many years earlier this summer. And I'm going to speak here as a mystic because this is part of my path or work, just like a, I have some beautiful paintbrushes in front of me that I use for watercolor painting. So if we were painting watercolor, I might pick up a brush and say, oh, my friend Cynthia has the most beautiful color of green she was using. 
I think I'll use a slightly different color of green and paint the willow tree. My interpenetration with my love for Cynthia and her interpenetration with the cosmos through her father and her late mother inspires me to then paint the willow tree. If someone asks, are you a painter? I go, well, no, but I love to paint watercolors. Why I go, well, because Cynthia's mother and my father and this green on the wall in the little frame and that green in my little paint box and the tree outside the window and, and you and me as we sip tea or we get a cup of tea for a homeless child or gratefully serve tea to someone at our office if we are fortunate enough to have health and have a, a job. Oh, the interpenetration of the divine order moving through everything or a universal sense of the cosmos, some mysterious yet humble and real. And so for someone like me, the paintbrush for me is more my body. And so mm, a number of months ago, I started being aware that I was to pray for Maui. And I would think about what I had loved there, the, the street, the Merwins, the little road, the Merwins lived on, that came down to the sea, the little humble area where they lived. The areas over in Lahaina where I had stayed for the first time in the 1970s and uh, was with the family who, were, who worked on sugarcane plantations. And an old friend of mine, uh, who's no longer alive, who was that unknown known painter, Michael Bowen, from San Francisco area, and his children. And the quality of this experience of sweetness that is remarkable on that island, part of what the Hawaiian people call the aloha spirit. But I would be aware that it had a touchstone a feeling that was hard to explain, but that I could rest within and dwell within. And then I was there again, and then I was there again. I've been there four times over the last 50 years. And when I started having the experiences some months ago, I actually turned in prayer late one night and asked the heavens, is there something wrong in Maui? Is there violence or some challenge in the culture needing attention. I was aware just of much of the goodness, but the commercial growth of it and, you know, various levels of all the things people live in. And then about eight days before the fire came, I started experiencing God having me be a bridge of prayer for dying people. Just like I do in hospice work, if I'm sitting at the bedside of someone and taking their hand or going and getting a cool compress for their forehead. I did this for days. And I would be in the mood of knowing that someone was going to be going through great loss and knowing that someone was going to die. I didn't know who, but I could feel the stardust that had come from God and was made of heaven in Maui, being taken back into God and into heaven, with me as a witness of sweetness and caretaking and prayer and 
love that I can't even say in words. And then when the news began about the fire, shimmering all around me for 50 or 60 feet were birds and small animals and trees and hibiscus flowers and the great banyans and people whose families have come from Hawaii for centuries and frightened tourists and people of every age. I could feel the change in my mood as God had my prayer be beside someone who was not well enough to leave their room. I would be like that. You know, I would have to walk with a cane. I could could no longer run now. I, I'm, I mean, I'm not like an old uh, person who can't stand or do anything, but I'm pretty close. So, you know, I would have burned in the fire. I did burn in the fire. I'm talking to you, and you are listening to me, and we are a living prayer for every creature who perished in that fire. They are stardust, and so are you and I. We come from that in these human bodies. And in a mature feminism, somehow heaven has asked us, how shall we care for the earth? That such fires are few and far between. That the ocean doesn't become so hot that the fish can't live. That the glaciers don't all have to melt because we have to have so many fine cars. And we don't think deeply enough about how to engineer them in an interpenetrated enough way that our breaths become, like Robert Thurman's and mine, practicing the sutras of the Buddha's later years. I'm not saying Thurman or I know what to do. I am saying we are in school together studying this. So in this extraordinary tragedy, the tragedy was coming for weeks before it happened. God had me in the classroom to be a sister, a daughter, a mother, a beloved, beside everyone in that fire. And none of the people there will ever know my name. The mature feminism of my grandmother Anna was at, was at Maui through the fire. The mature places of your ancestors and the Buddhas and of Twilas and of who we are and who our descendants will be if we caretake this sacred home that is our earth. That, inter that interpenetration is before us now. How do we address fire and air? How do we address earth from the unstable area of the earthquake of Turkey or other regions of our world to the deserts and the plains and the mountains and urban landscapes of all the continents? And the waters. How do we live in such an interpenetrated way that from the very first moment of our conception to the very last moment of our exhalation of our last breath, we are a child of heaven living where the matriarch of the divine 
has shaped us virtuously enough to birth us as daughters and sons, and that we willingly, lovingly tend that classroom to inspire the masculine beyond all wars and to become the humanists we were conceived and born to be. Then all the fires of Lahaina become the burning gods of Benares, the cremation grounds offered to heaven. Tragic here, yet not without purpose. We do not let the lives there be lost in vain or those of the earthquakes or those of the refugees or the warriors victims of war, perpetrators of war. We live in such a way of interpenetration that the Divine Mother of Heaven births all human beings into an adequate realization for each to pay attention to their path. We breathe, we pray, we practice.